Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support Oren's work, you can donate at orenjsofer.com forward slash support. I'd like to talk tonight about an aspect of meditation practice that doesn't get a lot of airtime. I'd like to try to highlight things that uh, are easy to forget or maybe uh, aren't included or taught about as much, just to try to fill out the picture. And um, so one of the one of the key qualities or principles that runs through the Buddhist path and um, the practices that constitute Buddhist training is balance. So we're always looking for balance between different energies in our body and our mind. So this is a basic balance between feeling calm and tranquil on the one hand and feeling energized and alert on the other. Right, so that's kind of one of the main balances that we go for. There's balance between um, this quality of faith or devotion or aspiration in our heart, kind of a very bright, um, confident, uh, open, wondering quality, and wisdom, right? actually discernment, being really clear, knowing what's happening and understanding it. So there's different aspects that get that get balanced. One of the things that can often get out of balance, and I referred to this at the beginning of our evening when we started sitting, um, was getting serious, taking things seriously in meditation practice. Contemplative training, spiritual practice can get really heavy sometimes, can get very intense and goal-focused, and sometimes for good reason. There's a lot to be serious about in life, uh, particularly today. Um, you know, there's our, each of us has our own personal issues, the various challenges that we're facing, um, our shortcomings or you know, whatever kind of neuroses or psychological or emotional material we're working through. And we've all got our stuff, and that can get kind of heavy sometimes. Um, there's a particular historical moment that we're living in, on the planet today, in terms of like the environmental crisis, um, or everything that's happening politically, and the kind of uh, immense uh, polarization in our society, and the absence of any kind of meaningful, real dialogue and exploration of the issues that are most important to people, right? Just these sound bites and kind of rally chants from both sides, you know? Um, So, yeah, there's a lot to be serious about. And then the more universal existential realities, just of being human, which are really at the heart of uh, the Buddhist path, getting sick, getting old, eventually dying, uh, the possibility of some deeper, more enduring transformation. We want to call it enlightenment or freedom or just a more enduring kind of happiness. These are, these are big topics. Yeah? These are not necessarily light things. So it's understandable that we could get a little bit intense 
about our spiritual practice. And even within the tradition, sometimes this is explicitly and purposely emphasized. You know, there's a word in Pali that some of you who have studied and practiced a lot, I'm sure, are familiar with, the word samvega, which means a kind of urgency. You know, in the Zen tradition, they talk about practicing like your hair is on fire. Right? So it's like, <laughs> this is really important. There's nothing else more important than this. Yeah. So, um, so an important part of the path is this sense of commitment, you know, like a wholehearted energy. Um, ardor is another word that shows up. Atapi, the sense of really giving it your all. And if you read the early texts, you will see um, this trope repeated over and over and over again. You know, like exert yourself, don't waste your time, uh, try hard, make an effort, generate will, generate desire, strive for the goal. Like there's a lot of that. And, you know, we can contextualize some of that in terms of ancient India. They weren't as driven as we were. They weren't, you know, running to try to catch the train and all that stuff. So maybe there was a little bit of a need to emphasize that more, right, than we do today. If you tell a Westerner to strive and try hard, you know, like they might give themselves a hernia because we're so wound up tight already. It's like usually what we need is a little bit more of that, relax, take it easy, you know, like we will work hard most of the time anyway. So with all of that, things can get a little bit too serious, a little bit too heavy. And if we're trying too hard, um, meditation loses the flexibility, the lightness that's necessary um, to really benefit from it. So another thing that tends to get in the way is if we view meditation practice as a system or a technique or kind of like a project to complete and improve at, like I'm going to get really good at meditation or I'm going to get I'm going to finally fix this person, you know, you know that one, you know, the self-improvement project. So when we approach it in that way with our usual attitudes, the attitudes that characterize a lot of our activities in modern society, and we bring those attitudes along into the meditation practice itself, attitudes of achievement. I put up my plaque on the wall. I sat this many hours without moving. Our you know, accomplishments, how many notches on my meditation belt have I got for the number of retreats I've sat, or we get really goal-oriented and get to the finish line, you know, the joke, uh, we did a 45-minute meditation and I nailed it in 15, you know, we're really efficient with this meditation stuff, or we get really perfectionistic, I've got to get it right, I'm not doing it right, or um, the sense of, uh, of performing, Continually being evaluated or judged or judging or evaluating ourselves. Am I doing well enough? Am I making enough progress? You know? So how does it work when we do that in meditation? How much joy does it bring us? Does that actually support our progress to be continually judging ourselves and seeing if we're performing or achieving or accomplishing all of these things? So to balance this seriousness, this intensity that can show up in our spiritual practice, 
very, very helpful to be able to cultivate a quality of lightheartedness, a quality of joy. One of my first meditation teachers um, was a Zen teacher, Soto Zen teacher. And he used to um, <clears throat> he used to sit around and, and tell stories, and then at the end, the punchline was frequently, "Life, ha, <laughs> very serious joke." It was one of the signs of wisdom is having a sense of humor. Not taking oneself or life too seriously. Not blowing it off either, but not taking it too seriously. Having a wider perspective on things. We still care. We're still connected. But the heart is light and free. So what I'd like to propose tonight is that at the heart of meditation practice, together with this quality of commitment, energy, urgency, focus, right? this real firmness in the mind, that together with that, another essential quality to bring to practice is play. Bring a quality of playfulness to contemplative practice. And what I'd like to do is to look at some of the qualities that define play. What do we mean by that? What does it mean to play? And then talk about how those show up and function in meditation practice. So first, so what is play? What does it mean to play? So first and foremost, play is voluntary. Right? No one's forcing us to do it. It's the opposite of our habitual attitudes towards work. I should, I have to, I'm obligated. And those attitudes that we carry into meditation frequently, right? You wake up in the morning, if you've got a daily practice, oh God, I've got to sit, okay, I'm going to sit, okay, I'll just do 20 minutes today. And there's a sense of pushing, of forcing, rather than this voluntary aspect that shows up in play when we're like, yeah, let's play a game, why not? Let's toss the Frisbee around or you know, go exploring. So in this, it's really important to connect with our motivation, our intention and practice. Why are we doing this? No one's forcing you. Yeah? It's just that voice in your head. And what's that about? Can we actually remember and recollect our deep yearning in our heart? Whatever that is for you, that's bringing us to be willing to sit down and be with this crazy mind. <laughs> that's so nuts. For 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour however long you're practicing for. So knowing why we're doing it and staying connected to that sense of choice, this voluntary aspect. I'm doing this because I want to, and you know what? I can get up anytime I want instead of I'm going to muscle through and force myself and push myself. So this is one very essential aspect, staying connected to the voluntary nature of meditation. Okay, next. Play is inherently attractive. We want to do it because it's fun and enjoyable. Right? There's this mixture of qualities that feel really good for a mammal. 
to play. We feel alive and interested and um, all higher mammals, I use that word higher very lightly, but all higher mammals play. If you look at monkeys or apes or dogs or cats, they all play. And there's a, there's a joyful in quality. There's a sense of being nourished and um, a happiness that comes that's inherent in it. It's not about getting something. right? It's not about like, oh, I got this nice thing and I have it now. Or someone's praising me. right? It's inherently pleasurable just through the activity. So this too is really essential in meditation practice. We have to be able to enjoy it, at least some. Otherwise, why are we doing it? Are we really going to stick with it? There's a certain amount of stamina and willpower that you can muscle through for a few years. There's got to be some joy in it. And if there isn't, let's you know take a look at that. This is a very famous meditation teacher from Germany by the name of Aya Kema. Some of you may know who she was. Um, she would say, um, I sincerely hope that your practice will bring you joy, but you have to start with some joy. Otherwise, it's probably not going to bring you much. You have to start with some sense of, like, I want to do this, and there's some enjoyment of it. So find out what that is for you. What draws you to this practice? For some, it can just be the sense of discovery, just a curiosity. Like, what is this really weird experience of being alive and having a body and being able to make sounds and look at each other and move and touch things and taste things? It's so mysterious that we're born into this world, you know? And just starting to take that apart. Well, gosh, how does this thing work? What is it? It can be a sense of joy that comes from the wonder. The phrase in the Buddhist tradition is, Ehi pasiko, come and see, check it out. Like, look and see for yourself. And there's an inherent attractive quality to that, this investigation, learning, uncovering things. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master and poet, teacher, activist, he talks a lot about smiling in meditation practice, just having the slightest bud of a smile on your lips. Not like a silly grin, but just just, just that subtle smile. And so it can be helpful to learn to pick up on the more subtle aspects of meditation that can be pleasurable. And this is not the kind of pleasure that we get from the senses. It's not like taking a hot shower um, or eating an ice cream. It's not that sort of hit of intensity. It's a simplicity. It's like a still quiet that's peaceful. It's more about the absence of something than the presence of something. The absence of pressure.
the absence of rushing. The absence of discontent and craving. These are things that we don't normally notice. Usually we just get bored if there's nothing happening. But we can learn to appreciate um, the soothing quality of just being without needing to produce anything or be effective or win or be attractive or intelligent or, you know, like all that BS that we that we're fed all day long. You know, it's enough to just sit here and be a little bit of a blob for, you know, just, you don't have to look at the TV, just, just be. And there's, there can be a quality of peacefulness in that. Or just noticing the soothing quality of the breath. If that's the case for you, sometimes the breath can be uncomfortable or tight, but just even one out-breath can be very relaxing and soothing. So finding that, that tone, that flavor for yourself in meditation practice. And as our understanding of meditation and our skill in the practice deepens, we also learn to find joy and take pleasure in the difficulties, in the challenges themselves. There's a kind of deep satisfaction that comes from being wholeheartedly engaged in something. We all know this. You know, if you've worked on a project that was really hard, that tested you, but you really stayed with it, you gave it all of your energy and your heart, and it challenged you, but you didn't let it, you know, grind you down. And then at the end, there's that sense of, all right, you know, I did it. And there's that there's a sense of almost like a pride, like you can stand up and say, yeah, you know. If you ran, ever ran a marathon or went on a long backpacking trip or many other things, right? So we know this experience. And that, too, can come through our meditation practice. So play is inherently attractive. It's enjoyable. And can we find that quality of enjoyment in our meditation practice? Play has no purpose. There's no end. There's no goal in play. It's done for its own sake. It's not focused on achieving or winning. So as adults, most of us get so focused on being functional, right? On <laughs> like, being functional and productive and effective, yeah? Having a purpose, producing results. And then a lot of our sense of self-worth and value gets tied into that, you know? Our sense of, of self-esteem becomes validated externally through rewards or accolades or how much we can produce. Um, the, the promise of being satisfied through material gain or sensory comfort, pleasant experiences, status, right, keeps us kind of trailing along in trying to accomplish, produce, or get somewhere having a goal or a purpose does it ever pay off? Do we ever get there? You know? 
bring me someone who's gotten to the end of that. I'd like to talk to them. It never ends. It's not satisfied. Whatever it is, the job, the bank account, the relationship, the clothes, uh, the haircuts, you know, whatever it is. And then you get it, and then, well, it's, it's all right. And there's another one that we want. So when our work and our daily activities and so much of our life start centering around results and functions and getting somewhere, um, when we lose that sense of uh, feeling personally engaged because we want to be there, not because we're trying to reach an end point. When we, le- when we lose the sense of um, personal ingenuity and uh, exploration, it leaves us feeling empty. Empty and exhausted. And then what do we do? Right? Turn on the TV, we take out the device. Then we need synthetic play. We need to be entertained rather than knowing how to enjoy play ourselves, rather than being able to source that sense of fun and entertainment from within. Do you get that? We keep, when, we keep, when we lose that sense of purposelessness, of just exploring for its own sake, then we forget. We forget how to just enjoy life. So the real deep satisfaction in life comes from a kind of activity where our heart is fully engaged, where where all of the parts of us are being touched and activated and uh, stimulated. Our interior is involved. Our imagination is stimulated. And then work becomes more of a craft it's um, it's more like uh, like an apprenticeship or uh, or an art. This is the kind of enjoyment and learning that's at the heart of spiritual practice, not um, producing results or getting some getting to an end. So. Uh, uh, abbot in Thailand uh, by the name of Longpur Liam, who took over from Ajahn Chah, one of the great Thai forest meditation masters, is fond of saying, practice for the sake of practice. Practice for the sake of practice. Have you ever been out in the woods canoeing or backpacking for more than an afternoon? If you've ever been out for a few days, we re- the body remembers that. You remember that sense of you know of paddling, not because you're trying to get anywhere, just just for the sake of of doing it or walking, hiking, just for the sake of being on the planet. It's like what this body was meant to do was to move, to be involved in the life of things. And it's that quality of being engaged in life without some distant goal that we're trying to attain that's at the heart of meditation practice. So Suzuki Roshi, the famous Soto Zen master who started San Francisco Zen Center, um, was also uh, was fond of saying, you know, if you feel frustrated in your meditation practice, that's a very important signal. 
it's a sign that we're practicing with some gaining idea. I'm going to get something. I'm going to get there. That frustration is a sign that there's something off in our motivation. We're not actually approaching it in the right way, so there's friction. So the aim is not to get something. Mindfulness practice and the Buddhist path does have a very clear purpose in terms of well-being, insight, and freedom. But it doesn't come about through trying to get something. That's the, that's the trick that we're learning all the time. It doesn't come about through that. It comes about by learning to be fully present with the simplest of activities of just sitting and breathing, of just walking, and bringing this spirit of play to it, of just wanting to be here and exploring without expecting I'm going to get something. You know, remember being a kid and playing? There wasn't that sense of I'm going to get something. It was just for fun. Just that sense of just doing it for the sake of doing it. That's the quality that we're looking for in our meditation practice. This wholeheartedness. It's not a wholeheartedness of like, oh, I'm going to do this and try really hard. It's a wholeheartedness that's coming from deep within that's joyful. It's like, yeah, this is great. Why not? You know. And obviously we don't always feel that way, right? It's not like every time you sit down at the cushion, there's going to be this light, joyful, playful feeling. you know. But can we bring some of that in? Can we remember that? Can we find that as a way of balancing the intensity and the seriousness? Instead of following this tendency, this conditioned tendency to seek a conclusion, to get to the end, to have an answer. What if it weren't about getting an answer? What if it were about finding the most beautiful question? The play is not linear. It's not about getting somewhere. It's just a process. It's a process of meeting what's happening, opening to the present moment and responding. Things don't get finished in life. The loose ends never get tied up. There's always an uncertain quality to it not really knowing what's going to happen. And that's like play. It's open-ended. It doesn't come to a fixed conclusion. This brings us to the next quality of play, which is that it stands outside of time. When we're really playing, it releases us from the boundaries and pressures of time. We're not watching the clock, right? How much longer have I got to play? You know, I'm going to get another three minutes of play. <laughs> or we're not waiting for it end. God, how much longer is this play? We're not trying to make it go more quickly. We become absorbed into the activity and time disappears, that sense of time passing. And this is, again, another facet of the wholeheartedness of meditation practice. Just like that complete attention that we bring into play, 
meditation practice can bring us fully into the present moment. And so again, just like um, this phrase, ehipasiko, come and see, check it out, it's inviting, the Dharma is also said to be akaliko, timeless. This is outside of time. It's not something that we get to in the future. What a relief. (laughs) It's not going to happen tomorrow. (laughs) That's an idea. Tomorrow. And then we try to figure it out. What does that mean? It's outside of time. Is it going to be? Where is it? It's not about thinking about it. It's not about trying to get it with our mind. Again, when when we're playing, there's a letting go. We let go into the present. And then we're released from time. That's, that's pointing at the, um, the kind of like the doorway, the gate to this aspect of the Dharma. So it's outside of time. Play is also outside of self. When we're really playing, we're not self-conscious, right? not that preoccupation with performing or with appearances. We're not, caught up in, we're not caught up in how we look or how well we're doing. We're comparing ourselves. Am I playing better than that kid? You know? We're just having fun. As soon as that sense of self-consciousness comes in, we're not playing anymore, right? That's not real play. And in Dharma practice, these energies of self-consciousness really can hinder our practice. A true practice is a selfless activity. It's not something that we do for ourselves. It's not even something that we... It's not the, the, the very sense of being someone who's practicing is an obstacle. It's one of the primary obstacles in meditation. Like, okay, I'm going to meditate now. How's my meditation? Am I getting better at meditation? I've been meditating for six years now, and I'm not any better than I was six years ago. I think my mind is even worse. (laughs) Just put it down. Put that whole thing down. It's It's not you. It's not me meditating. It's just the mind. It's just the mind learning. And just seeing if we can start to support some different energies and qualities in the mind. Like you've got a mixing board. And you're turning this one down a little bit and that one up a little bit. Okay, a little bit more awareness, a little bit more energy, just a little more calm. Okay, pay attention, not too hard. Just trying to get the right balance of being present in a light, flexible, steady, engaged way. And when when those start to come into balance, and we all know this because it's not that far away, it's so nice. Because we're released from that sense of self. There's no longer that nutcase up there going, how are you doing? Just try a little harder, do a little better. You're not getting there. Come on, come on, come on. You know? There's just like, ah, can just enjoy. Just be in the flow of life and experience. Which is not necessarily the end or the goal, but is an important part of the path.
another way that play is outside of the sense of self is that it's interactive. Play is often relational, you know, with other human beings or, or with our environment. We're engaging with the living environment. So that relational focus, exploring interaction and meeting the energies that are there, that also takes us out of the sense of self. And so you may be sitting here thinking, well, that's not like meditation. My eyes are closed and I'm by myself. Well, take a closer look. Meditation is a very relational activity if we're doing it properly. We're always in relationship. We're in relationship with the mind. We're in relationship with thoughts. We're in in relationship with the body, in relationship with emotions. Consciousness is an experience of relationship. It's an experience of something being known, of contact. So even right now, right, there's sound, there's seeing, there's contact happening, there's a relationship. And so much of our life is relationship. So if meditation is worth anything, it's going to show up in our life, in our relationships. One more quality here of play. There's no script. Play is improvisation. It's spontaneous. It's a creative process that draws on our imagination. There can be structure, right? There can be rules, particularly when we're playing a game. But then within that, there's freedom and exploration. So, And in the same way, meditation can be spontaneous and creative, and improvised, instead of being scripted, this is what's supposed to happen. Uh, now I'm supposed to be with my breath, and this is if this isn't happening, then I'm not doing it right. So the Dharma can be very um, alive. Very alive. Being creative with our mind, exploring not really knowing and getting curious, being willing to say yes. Something comes up in awareness. You know, What is it? Don't just know everything and come back to the breath all the time. Be willing to explore the material that arises in your psyche. Get to know it. Allow it to unfold inside. Let it reveal itself to you. And with that sense of spontaneity and improvisation, there's um, there's a quality of energy. There's almost an excitement or an uncertainty of like, well, what's going to happen next? I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen next. Right? When we're playing, you never know. Same thing when we're meditating. If we're meditating properly, we never know what's going to happen next. If you've ever spent time playing with with young children, you know you have to suspend reality. Like anything is possible in that zone. And in the same way, are we willing to put down our expectations and assumptions about the way things are when we meditate and start to actually use our imagination? What? Imagination? Meditation is about observing things the way they are. 
being with reality directly. It's not about imagining things. Really? If you look in the suttas, there's all kinds of analogies. The Buddha's always drawing analogies and metaphors. It's like meditation, mindfulness of breathing is like holding a bird. Mindfulness is like planting a firm stake in the ground. Desire is like... um, climbing a tree and uh, trying to get fruit while someone is sawing the tree down. You know, all, of, all of these beautiful, vivid analogies and metaphors, the Buddha was a really imaginative guy. He's always using the imagination to illustrate how this path unfolds. So there's this, there's this responsive and interactive quality um, to play and to meditation, a balance of give and take. And so we're, we're trying to find, um, we're trying to support and cultivate um, a mind that is light, nimble and flexible, that's malleable and workable, but also steady and firm, a quality of detachment and perspective. Like, hey, this is just play. Don't get too serious about this versus the sense of willpower where the stakes are really high and everything's really important and serious. The, um, the spontaneity and improvisation of play is often about learning, exploring our strength and relationships. If you watch uh, animals playing, um, puppies or young animals, particularly predators, they play at hunting. You know? They they play at chasing each other. Kids explore their bodies and their emotions through play. Right? When all of our children are spending their time just on the phone, they're not getting that learning of interacting, of feeling their own strength physically, emotionally, of learning through the contact with other bodies. Yeah? the social education of learning how to engage and cooperate and when it's when we push too far and how that affects other people. So the challenges of play encourage our imagination and creativity and endurance. And in the same way, in meditation, can we explore? Can we try to learn through our meditation, engaging with this inner world, with our emotions and our thoughts and our body? and really seeing what's it like. Can we bring those same qualities into our life and our relationships? Exploring those with the same spirit of of interest and learning. Because in the Dharma, we're always exploring our relationship with this moment, with what it is to be alive. And that's a kind of playfulness really fully sensing and discerning. You know, how is this? What's happening? Learning how to be in balance and in harmony with whatever's occurring. So we meet what comes up. We learn to include it rather than running away from it or suppressing it or avoiding it or trying to control it. And we bring the fullness of our presence, the fullness of mindfulness, to each moment.
So, for example, if we're feeling angry, can we bring some sense of playfulness to that? How am I with this? Can I find some balance in this emotion? Just like uh, when we were younger and we would grapple with another kid to see who's stronger. You know, can we grapple with our anger and feel some of its energy and its strength? See, okay, how strong is this anger? How serious is this? You know, get your hands dirty. Get in there. We're like walking on a wall and trying to keep your balance. Really get in there. Feel the anger. Let it come up. Play with it a little bit. How's it feel? How's it feel to let it rip? How's it feel to shut it off? How's it feel to stiffen or resist or push it away or start spinning in it? You know, get to know it. Get a sense of it. Visualize it. What's it look like, this anger? If you could see your own face when you were angry, what would your face look like? Engage with it playfully. Use your breath. Breathe into it. And give up the idea of getting anywhere. Give up the idea of the anger going away or getting rid of it or working through it, right? Just explore. What is this experience? If we don't get overwhelmed by it, if we can hold that some mindfulness, hold it with some mindfulness and really, really, really meet it, then the mind gets stronger. Our presence actually deepens. And we start to understand something about anger. We learn, oh, it's not fixed. It changes. It's not a person. It's not me. It's just triggered. It's stimulated by certain conditions, and then it can fade and dissipate. So meditation practice and this whole path can be um, it can be like art, you know. It can be three dimensional. It doesn't need to be flat and linear. In fact, if it is, then. Some of the some of some of its some of it, the life's gone out of it. It's like a, it's like a basketball with not enough air in it. You can't do anything with it. You know, it needs to have that bounce, that vitality, that sense of of a real genuine engagement and interest and exploration with a quality of lightheartedness. It's real. It's important. There's no. There's. Life is a very serious joke. You know. <laughs> Like, on one level, it's no joke. And on another level, can we bring that that spirit of play? So I offer these thoughts for your reflection tonight. So we've got about um, 10 minutes or so. If you have any questions uh, that you'd like to ask about uh, the topic tonight or your practice, I'm happy to... Discuss, explore, entertain those together. And if you do, just throw up your hands and we'll pass the mic over to you. Um, So I guess 
I see a lot where you're coming from about how it's possible to be overly sort of wound up in your practice and overly stressed. Um, and I feel that that way a lot of the time. But one thing that kind of is an obstacle is I sort of have this fear or a guilt that if I chill out or <laughs> let my guard down that somehow I'll end up being lazy and mm-hmm. I'll sort of like regress and not be able to pick my practice up again. So do you have any any suggestions of how to deal with that worry? Mm-hmm. I do. <laughs> Take a risk. Okay. See what happens. All right. How long have you been practicing? Well, well, I started like a few years, that one more, even more like 2015, then I took a hiatus, and then I've been really serious for the past year. Uh-huh. So, yeah. and it sort of was one of these weird things where a couple months ago, I had this unexpected jolt of energy, and I was uh-huh. like practicing like crazy. Great. And it's like, yeah. now I'm at the phase where it's like, I feel yeah. like I'm yeah. sort of need to wind down. Cause yeah. It's, you know, energy ebbs and flows in practice in the course of a day, a week, but also in the course of a lifetime. Our, our relationship with practice changes. And there's definitely, um, you know, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon. So we have to pace ourselves. And um, uh, so there's definitely something to be said for that, that quality of endurance. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, we need to stay balanced. And so if you're getting signals internally or externally that things are wound a little too tight, then we need, we need to find ways to loosen that. And depending on you and your conditioning and your circumstances, um, sometimes that can look like taking a break. So when I first moved out here... Uh, 11 or 12 years ago, um, I was really sick, and I went to see a Qigong medical doctor who lives out here, and, uh, you know, he took my pulses, and I told him I meditated, and he said, you need to stop meditating. (laughs) It was like, you're messing up your energy in your body, you know, and I was like, stop meditating, what are you talking about, you know, And, um, and I did. I didn't stop being aware. But I stopped meditating formally for, I don't know, six months or a year. I mean, I had been meditating at that point for a good 10 years or something, very, very diligently. But it was a very important time for me to just let go of the form entirely. And at first, it felt very free. I was like, ah, I don't have to meditate. This is great. I can do whatever I want. And I was like, oh my gosh, look how much suffering I've been creating for myself. It was a revelation. You know, and it totally transformed my relationship with the practice and helped me to find, it helped me to find my, um, my genuine desire to meditate. And it also helped me to see the benefits of meditation. Because obviously, I mean, obviously, but after a while, I started to see the results of not meditating. I started to see the suffering more and how my mind was more distracted or how I would get caught in things. And that was really important to see what happens when I wasn't practicing. 
And that became also more motivation to practice. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for your talk. Uh, my question is about the last part of your talk when you were kind of talking about how to operationalize play in uh-huh. your meditation. And you used the example of anger, and that's a, that's a fine example. But so just carrying that one further, my question is how, you know, you were kind of expressing curiosity, it seemed like, like how does it feel and where, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. But how does one do that without bringing a narrative? I mean, that's I've thought about this before, and it's so confounding. What do you mean by me. narrative? Well, you're playing with it as you're meditating, and it's it just seems so easy to for words to come arise in the experience. You know, to what's to wrong? Bring with w- ver- and I well because I thought that we don't want to. You know, we want to try to not mediate the experience. Uh-huh. Experience with with a narrative or with words or interpretation, well, so the mind, and so yeah. it's walking some edge there that I don't yeah. really get. So a couple things. Thank you for the question. It's important. Um, you know, there's an art to being creative in our meditation practice. Um, it takes a certain amount of stability in the mind, right? If there isn't enough stability, if the mind isn't um, able to stay present in a self-sustaining way, then we just get lost, right? And that's not helpful. So we have to know our own mind well enough to know, you know, it's like, uh, I could just go back to one of those analogies. It's like if you're walking, if you're trying to like walk on a, on a stone wall, and you get to a section of the wall and the stones are really loose, you're like, mm, I don't feel like breaking my leg today. You know, I'm going <laughs> to get off the wall and walk around. Right? If the mind is really unstable, it's not the time to go into the content and explore it. It's the time to attend to the foundation of stability. Now, if the mind is stable enough, there's some staying power there, you can actually start to, to feel into different areas of the mind and the body and the heart without losing presence, uh, then the thing to watch out for is getting lost in narrative, getting lost in thought, free association and why this happened and what it means about me and that person and the other day and how come they always and da-da-da-da-da, right? That's not helpful. But words are just thoughts. There's nothing wrong with words. They're going to be there. The mind uses language. It's one of the the ways that it... um, engages with experience. The, the, the point is to be aware of the words and not get lost in them. So it's fine that words appear. Sometimes words can be very powerful. You know, we're sitting with anger, just to go with that example further, we're feeling into it, and there's a sense of like red, hot, and then all of a sudden this word comes. Oh, betrayed. Oh, I feel betrayed. That's what this is, you know? And it's like that concept, and all of a sudden, everything crystallizes, and we can really feel what's happening. And it was the word. It was the concept that, that clicked it into place. It might not always be that, right? But words do have a role in meditation. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. 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 Th
Okay, so this is maybe a, a good time to wind wind down. Um, maybe just a couple of more announcements before we before we formally close. So now that we've spent the evening together, um, you know me a little bit better. I still don't really know you, um, but I would be happy to get to know you better if the occasion arises. Um, but if you'd like to stay in touch, I would love that. Um, so feel free to jot your email address down. Um, my website is my full name, orinjsofer.com. I've got a lot of Dharma talks and articles up on there. Um, and uh, feel free to take one of these postcards from my book, Say What You Mean, A Mindful Approach to Nonviolent Communication, which will be out later this year. Um, and if you'd like to hang out again, I'd love, to, I'd love that. There's a schedule, teaching schedule on the back table. So I teach around here in the Bay Area regularly. All right, so let's just end together with um, a few moments of loving kindness. So just turning the attention inwards. Bringing your attention to the heart. Connecting with the sense of kindness in whatever way feels authentic and natural for you. Wishing ourselves well. Wishing one another here tonight well. May we each be safe, happy, and peaceful. Wishing our families and friends and communities well. And also sending these wishes of kindness and compassion, a tenderness for human vulnerability to friends of our Sangha. And if you like calling to mind those in your own life or in our world today, who could use some safety, some peace and well-being. The deeper we go into our own heart, the more we realize that Nothing that we do in this life is ultimately just for ourselves. And that part of what makes, makes life meaningful is helping one another, sharing and giving. So may any goodness, any insight or learning Any well-being or freedom from our time together tonight be shared freely and widely with all beings on this precious planet. May all beings dwell with peace. May all beings dwell with peace.
May all beings dwell with peace. Thanks so much for your practice. Have a great night. Get home safely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.